What a great tune. I don't know if you've ever heard of the band uh, uh, Remedy Drive, but uh, this song, Brighter Than Apathy, is one of my favorite songs. And I love this band. I love what they stand for, but more about that later. Uh, Some of the lyrics in this song are just absolutely beautiful. They're so challenging. They're so inspiring. Make sure you read all of them if you haven't yet. But here's the kind of heartbeat of the song. The heartbeat of the song says this, I wanna live for something bigger than me, stronger than fear, brighter than apathy. You know, when I heard the, this song for the first time, was, it was last summer and it just, it hit me uh, big time because that was what I wanted my life to be. I did not want to be apathetic. It's something I've talked about a lot. I've grown up in the church. It's super easy when you are around religion all the time to become apathetic. What does that word even mean? Well, the word apathetic kind of really deals with this idea that we are uh, kind of disengaged from or not concerned with the issues and problems of our day. And I think that apathy is actually a religion-induced coma. So what does that mean? Well, here's the thing. Religion has a tendency to uh, make us feel like we are all set, that we are all good, that if we just do all the right things, we say the right prayers, go to church the right amount of times, give when the offering comes, then we can kind of appease our inner guilt. And there is a sense, right, that all of a sudden life is good because uh, I have been absolved of my guilt. I invited Jesus into my heart. Uh, I prayed the prayer. I said, I'm sorry. And so I'm good. And then the Bible tells me that God's wrath, when God's wrath rains down, that I don't have to worry about it, that that I have actually received forgiveness. Personally, I've been saved, whatever that language is you're kind of used to. And so we just kind of become in this coma-induced state where I do my religion things, but then I avoid the pain. I avoid the hurt in this world because after all, why should I care about what God is going to destroy anyway? That there is a form of spirituality, a form of religion that, that leads us to a place where we just live our life without any care or concern for the pain and heartbreak and oppression in this world. And unfortunately, religion and religious practices often function as the lullaby the thing that just lullabies us into sleep. It's often kind of like the siren song. If you're familiar with the sirens of Greek mythology that would sing their song and lure the sailors in to shipwrecks and they would lose their lives because it sounded so beautiful. Well, the reality is we are living in a space in the West particularly where many of our forms of Christianity have become the siren song of power and wealth. We have been uh, kind of drawn into this idea that we can regulate, that if we just get power and we can have wealth and then all of a sudden life is good and so our churches can be big and filled and we can raise money and we get enamored by power and wealth. Then what happens is we start to look at that and go, look at how successful we are. I mean, look at how big our buildings are. Look at how many people come in and how many people sing. Look at how much money came in this week. Look at how full the parking lot is and the power and the wealth and the same structures and systems, they they eke their way into the body of Christ and they lead us down a path of spiritual shipwrecks. And so what happens is this, like those things that are tools that are meant to be the means by which we bring hope. So people, right? We are, we are tools. Uh, we are instruments in God's hand and God's care. We come together, right? A building uh, like the one I'm standing in, it's beautiful, but it's simply a resource. It's a tool. The size of this building is not what's important, right? 
The truth is, uh, when we receive our offerings, it's wonderful. And, and that's great. And those, that, that money is simply a tool. It's a resource for us to go into this world and bring hope and life and to see transformed lives. But, but what happens when we listen to the siren song of power and wealth, the tools become the measure rather than the means of success. And when that happens, we are on the edge of losing our way and betraying the gospel of Jesus. When the tools become the measures, rather than the means of success, we've lost our way and betrayed the gospel of Jesus. And I'm afraid that so much of Christianity has become this very problem, that we are existence in this kind of apathetic coma, unaware, unconcerned, absolutely just it doesn't even cross our minds the reality of what's going on in this world because after all, we're gonna leave it. After all, we're fine. After all, we're part of the saved ones, whatever that means. But I think if we really look at scripture, we can find some wisdom that can help us navigate and kind of walk out of and come out of this coma. We can come out of this comatose state that we've kind of found ourselves in as the people of God. And I think if we look at this this place, we can see something of a light in scripture, this spark of Isaiah, I'll call it. Part of this song, Brighter Than Apathy, has so much rich imagery around light, uh, rich imagery around one spark. Well, there was this one spark in a guy named Isaiah over about 2,800 years ago. And this spark inside this man has stayed with us. It has stayed with human history because it's so powerful, but it was one man. This one man, Isaiah, in the middle of the eighth century saw what was happening with his people in his nation. He saw the oppression, he saw the path, he saw the wealth and the power trap. He saw what was taking place and how people were being abused by the power systems. And he began to speak up and he received and and felt that that, that the spirit of God was calling him into being a mouthpiece for what was happening. And so we have this uh, book in the scripture called Isaiah. And this book of Isaiah is massive. And the reality is the book of Isaiah is a very complicated collection of writings that span over about 200 years. Right? And so uh, we should, I wanna just look for a second at the reality of this massive collection of writings that we have 66 chapters in this huge book that's part of a series of writings that we call the major prophets. And this, this book of Isaiah is not just what Isaiah wrote or what Isaiah compiled, but it's a compilation of a set of literature that has a thread that really flows out of the vision, that flows out of the mission, flows out of the values of this one spark, Isaiah. The truth is most of the time we tend to think, a lot of scholars think that, that uh, Isaiah is like three different books. We think of Isaiah as three different segments. The first chapters one through 39 are probably, most of that does come directly from this life of Isaiah. These poems, these writings probably come directly from Isaiah in about the middle of the eighth century. And it gives us a picture of what was happening in the nation of Judah uh, at the time, which Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. As they were watching the Northern kingdom, Israel, go through tremendous uh, uh, civil wars, go through tremendous wars. And, and he was watching and seeing what was happening and the violence and the oppression and speaking into it. 
And then we have the second part of Isaiah, which a lot of times is referred to as second Isaiah, which deals with a different period of time, deals with about you know, maybe a, a 150 years, two, almost 200 years later, uh, the end of the exile of the Southern kingdom. It takes place after Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians, they had brought into exile. So this is now uh, a portion of scripture that it's a, there's a lot of comfort in this part of scripture uh, of Isaiah. It's comforting because the people are in exile. They are refugees living in Babylon. Jerusalem has been destroyed. And then there's the third section of Isaiah. Uh, We would call this uh, the third Isaiah and it's chapters 56 through 66. And this takes place after the exile when the people are returning back to Jerusalem. They're returning back to their homeland. They're leaving uh, the Persian empire's rule. The Babylonians had ruled and the Persians, now they're leaving that. They're coming back and they're looking at restoration. It's the great return. And so the big question of these chapters is, what does it look like to reestablish ourselves as the people of God? What does it look like to rebuild Jerusalem? What does it look like to continue to to hear and heed the voice of justice? And this is where I wanna look uh, for a few moments today as we we just gather together. I wanna look at Isaiah chapter 58, 12 verses, this beautiful poem about what it is that God is actually looking for. And here's what it says. Cry out full-throated and unsparingly. I love that. Cry out full-throated, unsparingly. Lift up your voice like a trumpet blast. Proclaim to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. It goes on, it says, they seek me day after day and they desire to know my ways like a nation that has done what is just and not abandoned the judgment of their God. They ask of me just judgments. They desire to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see it? Afflict ourselves, but you take no note. So the people are seeking after God. They're going through the religious obligations and they are recognizing where is God? Why are we in ruins? What's happening here? Why do we even bother fasting? Why do we afflict ourselves? You don't even notice this. And this is the response. See, on your fast day, you carry out your own pursuits and you drive all your labors. In other words, on this day of fasting, you continue to work and you work people around you. You continue to oppress. See, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Do not fast as you do today to make your voice heard on high. This isn't about you. Is this the manner of fasting I would choose a day to afflict oneself? to bow one's head like a reed and lie upon sackcloth and ashes. In other words, God, like the, the voice of God is being portrayed as saying, is this, you, this is what you really think I want. You think I want you to take a day to afflict yourself, to get my attention. You think I want you to bow your head. You think I want you to lie down in uncomfortable clothing and pour ashes on you and that somehow I'm gonna take notice of you. Is this what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? And see, what what really we're seeing here is this wonderful revelation from these these folks that have carried the vision of Isaiah 200 years later, right? And this is what they're saying. They're saying, you know what? Zeus-like worship, that's not genuine Israelite religion, right? This type of worship, this type of religion that that is inspired by pagan mythology, right? That there's some God on a throne who in order to get their attention, you have to cut yourself and you've got to roll around in the ground and you've got to, you know, starve yourself and this will get your God's attention, right? What what the author here is saying is bringing out uh, through God's voice, like, why would you think that that's what I want? Why would you think that that's worship? Why would you think that that is what is honoring to me? Why would you call that a fast day? 
He says, is this not rather the fast that I choose? Releasing those bound unjustly, untying the thongs of the yoke, setting free the oppressed, breaking off every yoke. In other words, uh, the voice of God here is saying, isn't this what I'm longing for? That you would actually bring freedom to the people that you have bound up in injustice, that you would actually show care and concern for your animals, that you would set free every oppressed person, breaking off every yoke. Goes on and says, is it not sharing your bread with the hungry, bringing the afflicted and the homeless into your house? See, now this is getting for real, right? Like this is now no longer like, oh, uh, just come and say, Jesus, forgive my sins and that's great. And then I'll sing all the songs and I'll give my money and then I'll get God's attention. Like we're learning here through the voice of the school of the prophet Isaiah that carried on for 200 years, this vision that God is not Zeus, that God is not desiring these religious practices to get God's attention to do what we want God to do. No, what God is calling for, the fast that God desires is about the oppressed. It's about what we do on that day for those that are naked, for those that are homeless, for those that are, are hungry. It says, do that, bring them into your house, clothe the naked when you see them, not turning your back on your own flesh, stop doing that. See, the real truth is the fruit of genuine Israelite religion, right? The, 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 the voice of Isaiah, the spirit of Isaiah is that real religion of Yahweh, the God of Israel, right? The fruit of genuine religion is human flourishing for everyone. Universal human flourishing. That's how you know when you're living out the fast days, when you are giving of yourself, pouring yourself out to free the oppressed, to bring justice to where there is no justice. And when that is happening, when we are actually saying, this is the fast, this is the act of worship, this is the practice of religion, then the prophet Isaiah, the school says, then your light will break forth like the dawn. I love it, your light. I love it, it's the light that's there within you. Your light that exists inside of you and me. The light that is dying to break forth. Then it can break forth like the dawn for those around you. Then it's coming out and then your wounds will be quickly healed. Your vindication will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. See, what, what's happening here, this, the, the, the voice of the prophet Isaiah that's coming through, this vision, this passion, this burden is the healing and freedom for the nation of Israel as it's replanting, as it's reforming itself would only be found when they commit themselves to healing and freeing the oppressed. The voice of the prophet here, the voice of, of, of justice is saying, listen, you can go and reestablish the nation. You can reestablish Jerusalem. You can build the walls and build the temple and go make all your sacrifices. But the true healing of this nation, the true healing of this people, freedom will only be found when the commitment is to healing and freeing the oppressed, to refusing to continue in the practices and in the ways that oppress people, that set people back. It goes on and says, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and God will say, here I am. He says, if you remove the yoke from among you, the accusing finger and malicious speech, if you lavish your food on the hungry and satisfy the afflicted. Notice there's nothing here about if you make all the right sacrifices, if you go to uh, church on this day, if you uh, follow this rule. No, no, no. It is all about love of neighbor. 
If you lavish your food on the hungry, if you satisfy the afflicted, heal them, give of yourselves, then again, your light. I love that. It's your light. It's not the light of God, your light, which is God's light, the image of God inside of you and me. It's the same metaphor. Your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall become like midday. Then the Lord will guide you always and satisfy your thirst in parched places, will give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden, like a flowing spring whose waters never fail. So I think the heartbeat of this is that righteousness would reposition Israel back in the strength of Yahweh. Righteousness. Now, not our understanding of righteousness in the moral kind of theistic religious way of it, but righteousness in terms of righteousness before God is how we care for the widow, the stranger, the poor, the oppressed, the worker in the field. How are we treating our fellow human beings? Are we living to elevate? Are we living to, to break those bonds? That's righteousness. And that is what the prophetic voice is saying here to the people of Israel. Only that righteousness will reposition you back in the strength of Yahweh. See, there is a path of God that we can walk in that is filled with strength. There's a path of God that we can walk in that's filled with hope and light and truth. But we can, we can walk off that path. And see, that path is set in how we treat one another as human beings, not as, as, as Christians or Muslims or atheists, but how we treat one another as human beings, dignified, filled with that spark, filled with that light, just waiting to shine forth. This has got to be my favorite part. Verse 12, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins, the foundations from ages past, you will raise up. And listen to what it says. Repairer of the breach, they will call you. Restorer of ruined dwellings. I wanna be called a repairer of the breach. I wanna be called a restorer of ruined dwellings. What the voice of the prophet is saying, 200 years after the prophet, this vision, this passion that just continued on from generation to generation, was saying to the people of Israel, as you begin to reform this city, as you begin to reestablish yourself, remember the true religious behavior will leave a legacy for the next generation, that you will rebuild these walls. You will leave something that can be, be, be given out in strength to the next generation. So what does all this mean for us? Right? What does it mean to live for something bigger uh, than fear, brighter than apathy? What does it mean to heed the voice of the school of the prophets, the Isaiah vision of what it means to be a part of this kingdom of God? I think it means this ultimately, that bringing unfailing love to the oppressed is the ultimate act of worship. Our anger verse says, I will be glad and rejoice in your unfailing love for you have seen my troubles and you care about the anguish of my soul. What does it say about us if we receive the unfailing love of God that sees us in our troubles, that recognizes our anguish, but we are unwilling to recognize that true religion, true worship, the ultimate act of worship is to take that unfailing love that we have taken from God and bring it to the darkest places in our world and bring it to the most oppressed places, the most impoverished places. What does it say about us if we're willing to take that unfailing love and just sit in it and just save it for ourselves because I said a prayer and I'm okay and I'm forgiven and I don't feel guilty anymore. What does that say about us? And so what about tomorrow? 
right? As we gather, as we listen, as we think, as we hear, as we receive the, the conviction of this message of, from this prophet, I think we have to ask ourselves this question, is our spirituality based on the concept of absolution or the concept of abolition? Ask yourself that. Are you an abolitionist, an absolutionist, or an abolitionist? Now I'm making up a word there. Absolutionist is not a word, but I just get to make it up. But it's based on the idea of absolution, a spirituality that says, I am absolved of my guilt. I'm free from that guilt of sin. But that's not the spirituality that the Isaiah gives us. That's not the passion, the burden, what true religion is. Right? It's not about just doing all the religious practices so we don't feel guilty. It's about an abolitionist nature that we look for the oppressed, we look for the enslaved, and we bring freedom. And I'm not talking about a metaphor here. I'm talking about reality. I think that's what Isaiah is talking about. The reality of oppression, the reality of the enslavement of people by economic structures, by greed and violence. And so there is a major difference between these two types of spirituality, the absolutionist spirituality and the abolitionist spirituality. So hang with me as I go through a chart to help us understand the difference and what I believe God is calling us into and what I believe true, biblical, authentic, uh, Yahwistic, whatever word you wanna use, the, the God of Israel, what's revealed in the gospel, true spirituality is, and it's abolitionist in its foundation, not absolutionist. So here's the thing. Right? The absolutionist spirituality says, uh, you know what? This love that I have is personal, right? And, and I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna, it's, I'm gonna live in the love of God and I'm gonna let it wash over me. And it's, and it's saved and it's on themselves. It's I, I confessed Jesus as my Lord. I received this unfailing love and now I'm good. But see, abolitionist spirituality says, I don't save that unfailing love, I spend it. I spend it, I pour it out on others. That the point and purpose of this unfailing love is not for me to save it and just live in it and bask in it, but the point of this unfailing love is that I would be a vessel that it flows through. Absolutionist spirituality focuses on personal salvation from divine wrath, that one day God is going to judge the world as it goes. And God is going to judge every person and I've said the prayer and I've said the right words and I've gone to church. And so I have my personal salvation and I do not have to worry about that day of judgment where God is gonna come and destroy the earth. But abolitionist spirituality says, no, the gospel says Jesus came with a message of universal salvation from human violence. Universal salvation, that God loves all, that God is rescuing and saving and redeeming all things. And he's redeeming all things from human violence. And Jesus came with a gospel and with a message and with a way of life that would absorb the violence rather than reciprocate the violence. So absolutionist spirituality focuses on freedom from guilt. I'm, I don't feel guilty anymore for my personal sins, but abolitionist spirituality says, no, no, it's not freedom from guilt that this is all about. It's freedom for people that are not oppressed by feelings, but are oppressed by the sins of humanity, the greed and the violence that produces things like human trafficking, that produces slavery, that produces uh, systemic injustice that holds us back as humanity. The absolutionist spirituality finally is ultimately focused on the potential problem that might exist at some point in time because of the justice of God. A just God requires a perfect sacrifice as it goes. 
And so an absolution of spirituality focuses on that potential future problem, which at the end of the day removes all power from the gospel in our present life. But an abolitionist spirituality looks at the lens, looks at Jesus, looks at scripture and says, no, no, no. The call of Jesus, the call of the gospel is to the pressing current problems of the injustice of today. Right, that I'm called in, that the gospel comes and, and brings me light so that I can press into the darkness today. And this is the way in which I can, I can focus on the problems of injustice, not the problem that is posed to me by the justice of God that one day I'm gonna be thrown in hell. No, no, no. The reality that people are living in hell right now all around us. And the call is to, to bring people out of that. And so one of the things that exists in our world today, that's one of the great atrocities that continues is the trafficking of human persons, modern day slavery, the reality of what it is here in 2020, that it is a part of our lives. It's a part of our existence. The reality is that human trafficking and the, and the enslavement of people, there are over 25 million people in our world right now that are victims and enslaved. $150 billion right now in this industry, whether it be labor, whether it's sexual uh, slavery, people held our own. And it's not, this isn't something that happens in third world countries. Our own Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, has its own program, Crimes Against Children and Human Trafficking Program. Polaris, a nonprofit that started the uh, National Human Trafficking Hotline put out its statistics for 2019. In 2019, there were 22,326 trafficking victims and survivors identified in the United States. There were 11,500 situations of human trafficking identified, uh, circumstances where people were being trafficked and held. 4,384 traffickers were identified. This is in the United States. 1,912 suspicious businesses identified. Here in Colorado in 2019, there were 176 cases alone. The State Department puts out annually for the last 20 years, it's trafficking in persons report where it looks at the globe and it looks at hotspots around the globe. And it looks to identify what are the measures that countries can do to combat and they can move from a tier three to a tier one country when it comes to ending modern day slavery. One of the hot spots in the world when it comes to the supply side of human beings for the, the sexual, uh, the trade of, sex, of human beings for sexual uh, business is Romania. I've had the privilege, uh, Wendy and I've had the privilege of being a part of different ministries in Eastern Europe and meeting some wonderful people who are doing great work. Inside the trafficking report, uh, this year's uh, trafficking in, human person, in, in humans report, uh, there's a story of Sophia. And Sophia uh, had landed in Italy with her new fiance. And she was from a small Romanian village. And she was excited to leave because there was no opportunities for her there. This is a, a serious, significant issue within the country of Romania. No economic opportunity, no jobs. And so she left and went to Italy uh, to work with her fiance. But soon after arriving, Sophia's fiance handed her an itemized bill for every meal, every trip and gift he had ever purchased her. He told her she needed to reimburse him by engaging in commercial sex. He forced her to do this through threats, physical violence, destroying her personal property, 
Eventually, Sophia escaped back to Romania and is now receiving support. But this story of Sophia is the story of so many. And so one way that we can begin to live into this reality of how can we carry on the voice of the prophet Isaiah? How can we live for something bigger than us? How can we exist brighter than apathy? is to lean into our kids are worth it initiative right now. This is the moment for us to live outside of ourselves. You know, in seasons of the pandemic and seasons of, of difficulties, it's so easy for us to face inward. It's so easy for us to look at our situation, our circumstance, but this is the time where we need to rise up and be generous and live outside of ourselves, where we need to be outward facing, where we need to be courageous and trust God. And so we need to believe that keeping kids free is worth it that keeping kids free is worth it. And so this month, the month of August, we're gonna partner with an agency in uh, Romania that I've had the privilege of being a part of and actually helped start uh, called Value Plus. And so if you look at the globe, uh, you zoom in and you see Europe. Uh, in Eastern Europe, the Eastern European bloc, uh, you'll see you have countries like Romania, the Ukraine, Bulgaria, and Romania is an area of the world that Wendy and I and our family have had the privilege of just seeing what God is doing in a firsthand way, especially in the Northeast area there of Romania and the nation of Moldova. And a few years ago, we were able to partner with a friend who we've known for about 20 years, a gentleman named Marian Paduets, who was born in Romania, pastored a church. And we started an organization together called Value Plus. And Value Plus was committed to working with the most at-risk young people in the nation of Romania to share with them that their lives have value, to bring the values of Jesus into their world, into their life. And this organization has been doing wonderful work over the last four or five years. Uh, they have programs for a better future where they work with the most at-risk kids in certain small villages and after-school programs, uh, programs to feed the homeless, programs to build permanent homes for families that are homeless. Uh, one, one program that I think is wonderful is the Father's Day Out, where on Father's Day, they bring uh, fathers who are imprisoned and they've worked it out with the prison system where they can bring those dads with their kids to spend the day together. But today, what we wanna focus on in the month of August is helping uh, Value Plus with a, a, pro, a program called Stay Free. And Stay Free Project is focused uh, its efforts on education and prevention of human trafficking in Romania. The goal of the Stay Free Project is to educate 32,000 kids over a five-year period of what the dangers are and how traffickers work, to work with 500 adults and community officers between the police and educators to help them understand what are the signs of traffickers, how do they identify it, understanding the full living system, to work with 300 schools. Wendy and I have been so privileged to be a part of the Stay Free Project uh, with some of their conferences that they've done. Wendy working with educators there uh, and, and me being able to work with young people and with some of the other leaders, it's, it's been fantastic. And so we wanna say as a church that keeping kids free is worth it. That what it means to follow Jesus is to give of ourselves, to be committed to this, to live a life stronger than fear, brighter than apathy. And so during the month of August, every penny that is given to the Kids Are Worth It Fund is gonna go directly to uh, the prevention of trafficking, of human trafficking for kids through programs like the Stay Free program. And so I wanna encourage you this week, this week, the next week, the following week, here in the month of August, to trade your caution in for courage. To for three weeks, trade your caution in for courage, to give generously, 
to be a part of this, to celebrate that we can keep kids free, that we can be that star, that our light can shine like the noonday. I wanna look one more time at some lyrics from this song by Remedy Drive. It says, thoughts and prayers are nice, but they won't suffice. Give me bravery, give me sacrifice. I'm not looking for your pity, I want your life. Your voice, your youth, your time, your art, your song, your life, your rhyme, your heart, what will you spend it on? The truth is every one of us has something You have your voice, you have your gifts, your talents. What will you spend it on is the question. What will we spend it on? And when we're gone in ages to come, the sages will write, so rage the bearers of the light. So wage the few with all their might against the terrors of the night. That's gotta be my favorite line in this song. So rage the bearers of the light. That's what I want my life to be about. I wanna be a bearer of light. I wanna trade in my caution for courage. I want my life to count for something beyond me. I want the work of my hands to count for something beyond me. I wanna live in the stream of the spirituality of Isaiah. I wanna live with that heart of the abolitionist. You know, what's unique about this band Remedy Drive is they don't simply write and sing about uh, abolitionism. They don't simply write and sing about the ending of human trafficking. They're engaged deeply. This past week, I got on a Zoom call with the lead singer, David Zach. And we talked about some of these lyrics and the work that they're doing with Exodus Road in human trafficking. And I think it could be an inspiration to all of us. Check it out. For, for folks that don't know about Remedy Drive or have never kind of got a chance to hear your music, like tell everybody a bit about like uh, your band and how it got started and what you guys are all about. Remedy Drive started, uh in college it was me and my brothers um and we just started playing free free concerts on the quad we were indie for most of the time like we were independent doing our own thing we signed a record deal in like 2008 uh, and that's where our song all along went to radio and people found out a lot more people found out about us that way but it was hard for me in that industry the contemporary christian music industry um, to be honest and to write honest songs. And I had from the beginning, like Invisible Children, that organization that helped expose a warlord kidnapping young boys and forcing them in certain awful kind of slavery and their sisters into a certain awful kind of slavery, forcing them to, to, to kill for his stupid war. That had moved me so deeply. And in 2004, 2005, we did some, some shows with Invisible Children, fundraisers. And it was always a part of our our passion, but I could never get anybody in the music industry excited about making music that it would not sell. So in 2013, we left the Christian music industry to make our first of, in, a, in a trilogy of counter-trafficking albums to talk about injustice, talk about slavery and trafficking. In the middle of writing that album, I met a, I met a guy named Matt Parker from the Exodus Road, a counter-trafficking organization. He was looking for a band to represent what they were doing, to talk about it, to try to recruit people. And that's when my life changed. I was like, man, if I'm singing about this, how can I sing about it and not do anything? The Exodus Road is a an NGO, a non-government organization that exists to find and free slaves. And they're based a few hours south of you in the Springs. And so for the past year, I've joined Matt and the Exodus Road around the world on undercover operations, spying on mafias and cartels and criminal networks that are selling kids. So we're online, 
trying to prevent trafficking here at home, working with the FBI, working with different law enforcement agencies. Uh, and we're around the world. We're in India, in Latin America, and in Southeast Asia. So sometimes I go over with them to pose as a foreign tourist that's interested and find somebody for sex, which is a hard job to play. Sometimes it's in clubs, sometimes it's in um, Latin America. We just have these parties to try to, to try to get these criminal networks, which they're smart and they have technology too, but try to get them to come out of hiding and to trust that police operation. And so far the Exodus Road has rescued around 1400 people from slavery, which is something I'm pretty excited about. So let's talk about the lyrics of this song, right? Brighter than apathy. Yeah. One thing that I really wanted to kind of get your actual perspective on was this light from days of old. What was the inspiration for that? And talk to us a little bit about kind of that lyric. In abolition conversations and in abolition history, you go back to this fire on a hillside. And I imagine this prince that escaped out into the desert sees this fire on the hillside and goes up and he, he has this call life at that moment and you realize he had the position he had in order to use that position use that platform to go bring a million people to their freedom and they walk through on dry ground i don't know what the astronomical alignment was at that point in time but i imagine that same fire burning from an explosion and by the time Another woman named Moses saw that fire, Harriet Tubman, they called her Moses, teaching them to, to, to weave into their lyric, into their forbidden outlawed melodies that they'd sing, looking up to that star called Polaris and those explosions, that fire. And the connection I'm trying to make is there's, there is that in all of us. And when the, when the maker fastened the foundations of the earth so long ago, the morning stars looked in and they danced and they sang this song. And so this this fire and this melody and this song that we're all, we're all born remembering it from some other place somehow. Uh, and and we, we, we were leaning into it. I just want us to remember that is that is us. That same fire from Moses and Harriet Tubman is a fire that is innate. It's, it's woven into the very fabric of our souls. It echoes in a deep chamber of our heart that we don't even know exists. And I just want to just wake that up. So the, the last thing that I about the song uh, that I wanted to ask you about and just get your your thoughts on, right? Um, the, this When you ask the question, what will you spend it on, right? And then you no. say something I don't think most of us think about, that we don't think about what happens when we're gone. Well, that I, I think at the end of the day, we're all, we're all wondering that question. What will be said of my life? And at points, this weight of glory that is in all of our hearts, this longing for recognition that that it is really can be really toxic. That we're you know looking for um, looking for uh, approval, looking for, but it speaks to a, a, a this longing that we all have to to hear the phrase "well done." And I want that to be said about my life. Well done. Uh, and today there is, we are encompassed by this cloud of witnesses, by the abolitionists that have gone before us, by um, so many people that have decided that their five loaves of bread and two fish actually do matter. In that naive, audacious way a child said, here, here, here's my lunch. Maybe, like you said, we don't have to have a rock band or a nonprofit, or you have what you have. You have your currency that I don't have. You have your, you have your pulpit, I got my microphone. Um, 
will I spend the currency of that? What will I spend it on? And Isaiah, this prophet says, if you spend yourself on behalf of the oppressed, then your light will rise like the noonday. And then once again, it's that light. Human history is this fight of a great evil to extinguish that flame. And in all the thousands and thousands of years that we've been here, and and the, the fact that that flame is still going, I think it speaks to the fact that, that this darkness, it just can't. It cannot comprehend the light. It can't. And when you shine that candle, there's nothing darkness can do but flee from that candle. And that's all the references, man. It just, it just talks about a candle. It doesn't talk about a bonfire necessarily. All you got is a candle. And I want to spend that little bit of light that I have. Like Bono from U2 said it. We're U2. We're a rock band. Maybe at the end of the day, we've been able to tear a little corner off the darkness. And you see the amount of light that that, that group, those four guys have put into the planet. And, and he describes it as maybe tear a little corner off the darkness. Well, then I'm gonna tear a little corner off the darkness too, in my own way. I love it. I love that, tear a little corner off the darkness. So, so that's my encouragement to us today, that we commit ourselves to being uh, and having a foundation of an abolitionist spirituality here, that we would continue in that. And if we do that, we will be called bearers of the light. We will tear back a small corner of the darkness. We will continue a legacy if we will keep our vision focused on what true religion actually is. And that is the gospel of Jesus. As he said in Luke 4 at the beginning, in Luke 4, 17, verses uh, 17 through 20, Jesus is in the temple and they hand him a scroll from the prophet Isaiah and he unrolls it and he looks at this scroll. He looks at this writing that was from at least 500 years before his life. Now, 20, you know, 800 years from where we sit today. And he reads this portion that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. What did we talk about last week? That the spirit of God is that intimate presence of God that comes and reorders us. That's the spirit of God at work in us. So what Jesus is saying is the spirit of the Lord is upon me, but it's also upon my followers. For the spirit has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This word good news is the same word that we use to understand what the gospel is. And this is the gospel to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And so I wonder if today we would write forth Isaiah together. I wonder if our lives could come together and we could live in the themes and we could live in the vision and we could live in the heartbeat of the prophet Isaiah today, 28 years, 2,800 years later, and that we could write forth Isaiah with our lives, that we could write forth Isaiah with our poetry, that we could write forth Isaiah with our causes, with our convictions, and that we could carry on that legacy and that Isaiah's voice could continue through our breath and that his work could continue through our talents and his vision through our generosity. The band has a song prepared for us called Reckless Love. It is the reckless nature of God's love that causes us to go out and live recklessly for that love, to commit ourselves not to running from the darkest corners of this world, but running into the darkest corners of this world to recognizing that in times of pandemic is not time to, for us to stop being generous, but it is an opportunity for us to live outside of ourselves, to be generous for those that are the most vulnerable, for those that are trafficked, for those that are held in bondage and oppressed by the structures and systems of this world.
And so as we hear this song, as we think about the reckless nature of God's love that we have experienced, I pray that you and I would be convicted to live in that reckless love for others, that we would live out the passion, that we would live out the understanding that there is no uh, mountain that can separate us from this love, that God kicks down doors on our behalf and that we ought to do the very same for others. And that this is what will cause our light to shine. This is what will put us in the strength and the path of the Lord. Not going to church, not singing songs. Those are all fine and good things to do, but that's not true religion. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is to spend ourselves on the cause of the oppressed, to be light in darkness, to be the yeast that holds everything together. Enjoy this song.